Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello and welcome to the Karma You podcast. This is your host, Chloe Brotherhood. I'm a coach, a hypnotherapist, and the author of The Anxiety Solution. Thanks so much for listening today. So I'm talking to the incredible Daisy Buchanan. She is an award-winning journalist, and she's the author of the critically acclaimed book, How to Be a Grown-Up, and she's also the author of the new book, The Sisterhood. Now, Daisy is someone that I basically stalked on Twitter and have stalked her for about, I don't know, several years now, and really loved her work and followed her, and finally, she knows that I exist, and so I was very honoured that she agreed to come on this podcast. She is a regular contributor to TV and radio, She's always on Woman's Hour, Good Morning Britain, This Morning and Today programme. And she writes for a huge range of publications, The Guardian, The Telegraph, The Times, Grazia, Marie Claire. And she covers everything from pop culture to mental health to things around feminism. And so we had a brilliant conversation. We talked about the problem of comparison and how, let's face it, you know, the majority of us are going to experience issues around this topic at some stage or another in our lives. We talk about how to redefine success and how this idea of success so often trips us up and gets in the way of our happiness and creates so much anxiety. And I was really curious to ask Daisy what she learned as Grazia's agony aunt. And she also shares about her own mental health and how she manages it. So before we get into the podcast, I have a big announcement that I have been keeping to myself for basically a whole year now and the time has finally come to get to share about it and to tell you all about what I've been working on for basically the whole of 2018. So after the success of my first book, The Anxiety Solution, I was asked by my publishers and my agent to write another book and I knew immediately what I wanted that book to be about and it's something that not only have I struggled with and learned a lot about in the last couple of years, but also it's a topic that when I talk to women, it comes up again and again as something that people are struggling with, that people really relate to and need help with. And so my new book is going to be out on the 2nd of May 2019. And again, it's published by Penguin, who published The Anxiety Solution. And it's called Brave New Girl. It's all about how to say no how to stop being a people pleaser and how to finally grow your confidence. So it really is a kind of a follow on from the anxiety solution, the next step. So once you've done a bit of work on your anxiety, wanting to take it a bit further and actually work on 
your confidence, your assertiveness on asking for what you want and speaking up for yourself. And it's going to be on Audible, read by me and also on paperback available on the 2nd of May. And you can pre-order that now. And if you're keen to get this book, I really would ask that you pre-order it because basically what happened with the first book was that it sold out on Amazon after it was in the newspapers. And that meant that people didn't get their books in time because it takes a while for Amazon to restock. So basically, if you pre-order Amazon and all the bookshops, buy a lot of stock. And it also helps it to get it to the number one spots in the book charts, which is something I'm really aiming for. So if you want to be the first to get this book, Brave New Girl, please go ahead and pre-order it on Amazon or Audible now. And I called it Brave New Girl because I believe that we are all brave. We all have courage inside of us and we can tap into that and we can unleash that to grow our confidence. It's about this recognition that you don't need to have been born a confident person in order to be courageous, in order to grow your confidence and do the things that you want to do. And that has been so much of my journey you know, really struggling with anxiety, low confidence, low self-esteem to, you know, finally and step by step being able to do all the things that I want to do and feel how I want to feel. And I'm sharing my own journey and the journey of other women who have walked a similar path in this book, which I know so, so many of you are going to relate to. So enough about that. Let's get into the episode with Daisy Buchanan. So welcome, Daisy. Thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to talk to you. I loved your book, your first book that came out a couple of years ago, How to Be a Grown-Up, and I'm very excited about your latest as well. Can you share with us what it is that you do and how, how did you get to where you are today? I'm a writer and journalist. Um, I have been um, writing full-time for a job since... Um, Gosh, 2008, I started, I was um, a features intern on List Magazine, and I think I've been writing every day since the summer of 2008. I went freelance from Bliss in 2012. When I was doing that job, it was a magazine for teenage girls. We had a tiny team, and everybody mucked in and did everything. So I sort of edited the real-life section, so, and I did well, as told two stories. So I talked to teenagers who'd gone through all kinds of really difficult situations. Uh, we had no budget, so a lot of those stories kind of came from like charities, and we had to sort of find the people. I, you know, I set up a book page, um, which is something I'm still <laughs> doing a lot of book stuff in my professional life. Um, you know, celeb interviews, which could get quite bizarre. I went on some weird trips, had some really really fun times, and but the thing I love to do the most is all the the confidence features. And when you're writing for teenagers you're a little bit limited in the sort of the references you can make and the jokes you can tell them because they're not you know you're well, at the time I was in my very early 20s and some of you know in lots of ways I felt like a teenager still but there were things like you couldn't make jokes about getting drunk and having sex because you know the parents would get cross so I think that discipline was great for me and that I couldn't just sit around and wait to see what I felt like writing about I had to write something and there was so few of us as well I think if I'd been on a different magazine where there had been a bigger team or say it'd been an adult magazine and you know you sort of do and I've been on those magazines with as much bigger staff and you know I felt like I'm, I'm not doing anything this is weird I was like I was writing half the magazine before um and so after doing that for four years I went freelance terrified really really terrified I didn't exactly choose it they were saying 
yeah, we don't have any more money to pay anybody if you thought about leaving. And the only way I could, you know, get promoted was if my boss left and she wasn't going anywhere. Um, so yeah, with my heart in my mouth, I thought, well, this can't possibly work. So I just did everything. And what did help, oddly, was at the time I was writing a very, very tongue-in-cheek blog about Made in Chelsea for a website called Sabotage Times, which is set up by James Brown, who set up Loaded. Now, even though I'd, you know, been full-time on a magazine for four years and my I had really great experience I think Made in Chelsea was the thing that got me hired and I think those catch-ups made people laugh that ended up as a column it was at the mirror then the debrief now it's at Grazia I think it's somewhere else um and so I think as well it really helped that I started at a time when Twitter felt a little bit looser and more friendly and I think that editors were looking for writers and you know, it was a great way of get because I, you know, I really felt very frightened to sort of like, oh, I don't know anybody. Everybody talks about how sort of connections and networking are important. I don't know how to do that. I don't know where I'd begin. I'm slowly learning that just getting really, 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 really drunk with someone isn't networking. That's something else. Um, and so in those days, Twitter's very much be funny or die. And so, you know, you could share all your work and people could find you that way and as a result of that you know and I think I've probably because I'm um <laughs> as you know a deeply anxious person and I think that's had a real impact on my my work ethic I'm always terrified about missing deadlines so I don't I've um never been um too proud to write an unbyland listicle I feel like if you've got an hour and you can do it and make some money you might as well do it so um I guess as a result of all those things, you know, my, I was able to have a, um, you know, to be full time and freelance. I wrote my book with headline came out in 20, oh God, 17, How to Be a Grown Up. That wasn't my first book. It was absolutely marketed as my first book. Before that, I'd written the um, Made in Chelsea columns have been turned into an ebook by Sabotage Times and then by Little Brown. Um, and that's sort of how I got my brilliant agent, Diana, who's been just the best. Um, then I wrote a dating book for Carlton. It was so, it was, I think I wrote it kind of the summer before Tinder came out and I think it like it came out and then Tinder came out and it's like this, this is this is all largely irrelevant now um but again that was a a job I got approached to do they're looking for a writer and so I wrote that so how to be a grown-up I think was the first book that I really I had an idea and I worked on the idea and I kept working on it. And there were many, many moments when I, you know, give the proposal to Diana and she's like, no, you need to do more of this and less of this and change that. And the number of times I very nearly gave up on it. Um, and I'm glad I didn't. And I do some um, some ghostwriting as well, um, which is something I'm always excited. That's I think that's a job that everybody sort of thinks they can do. Because you're like, well, that'd be fun. How hard can it be? And um what I have done has been, it reminded me a lot of my experiences at Bliss, both doing those sort of as told to real life stories. And also I used to write columns for N-dubs and the Saturdays and JLS. So I'd had a little bit of a, a go. And there are so many, I've got a friend, um, Charlie, who does it for um, sort of sporting legends. And that's so much harder that when I've done it, I've had a lot of not 
I wouldn't say creative or artistic license exactly, but there's more of a, it's been much more tone based and sort of factual things that if I was like, well, I had to, I, I won this race on the 12th of April, 1978, I'd be, I'd be stuck. And so after, um, Has We Grown Up, which came out with headline, um, it was a contract for two books. And the second of those two books, The Sisterhood is coming out in the, on the 7th of March. I was like, it's going to be on March. No, no, I should say, I do know the date, it is the 7th of March. And it's a memoir. It's much more of a memoir than How to Be a Grown-Up, which had elements of memoir in it. And it's about feminism and women and the relationships of women, how that's something that I find so nourishing and so worthy of celebration and sometimes very infuriating based on the fact that I've got five little sisters. I'm a very close in age. And the sisterhood is a name for, I think, you know, what we say when we want to talk about womanhood and feminism and women supporting each other. It is also the name of the WhatsApp group that I have with my five sisters. <laughs> so, yeah. I don't know if it's the first book named after a WhatsApp group, but I'm going to claim it. <laughs> I love that. And I, I really want to hear more about that in a moment. But I wanted to ask you about how to be a grown-up which I loved by the way and there's still a line in that book that has stuck with me I can't remember exactly what it is but it's something about being a person that goes on about wanting a dog all the time but doesn't <laughs> actually get a dog and that is completely me so there's a lot of things in that book that were just that make you laugh because you know that they're so true about lots of us so oh god I mean that. to be honest I'm going to say that if anything sort of made me feel like a failure as a writer and human it's that like two years on dogless oh no is that do you plan to get a dog in the future oh, or? really really love to it's a tricky thing we are still renting a flat we'd like to buy somewhere to live again that's a real anxiety thing I think the book how to be grown up has a chapter about money and it really that was I think I would say the most difficult chapter and the most meaningful chapter to me because I think there is so much financial advice and if you have a brain you can read it and digest it but then applying it to your life in any kind of emotional sense I think that money is primarily an emotional issue and it's been one of the biggest things to affect my mental health and so even now while a lot of my fear of trying to buy a house feels quite primal it's not uh, oh I've got to do this practical thing it is a fear of you know going to the bank and them just saying no and you you know you will never have this you're not good enough to have this it's also a very big fear of finally having some savings and being freelance and being precariously employed feeling that it's just so mad to, to throw them into being a, a deposit when they could be savings that I might need to live on you know should a rainy day come so and I know and I keep having conversations with people and people always end up saying well you should talk to a mortgage broker or you should like no you're, you're not hearing what I'm saying, which is, you know, you're like, it's basically me saying, I am so scared of spiders. And them saying, well, if you buy the spider now, you could have paid the spider off in 25 years. <laughs> I think, I think financial things, I think when they do surveys of what people worry about, it's money comes up top mm -hmm. every time, I think. Absolutely. And in relationships too, it's always the biggest cause of stress. Mm -hmm. In in How to Be a Grown-Up, I suppose you talk about the kind of people in their 20s and that, that kind of in-between stage where you don't really feel like a grown-up. And there are lots of us, even I'm 30, nearly 33, 
And there are times when I feel like I'm not quite an adult yet. And I know you can see it on social media, people posting about adulting and, mm. um, you know, if they buy a house, they feel very grown up. But then there's that sense that part of them doesn't feel like they're, they're quite at that grown up stage. So what, why do we feel, why do you think we feel that way? Why do we feel like we're not quite grown ups yet? I do think that we have come of age in an era where it feels as though there are perhaps more options but fewer opportunities. I'm 33 as well and you know I graduated into a recession. Um, lots of people I know do jobs where you know if their parents had been said your child will be a, a social media manager. Like, oh, I'm, I'm sorry what are you talking about? I think that the the basics of adulthood, which I always, you know, if like a child drew a picture of it in a cartoon, you've got, you know, house, car, you know, kids, maybe a dog. And we have got so many opportunities, I think, to maybe to travel, to try different careers, to build our own careers and, you know, really explore and be great. But the, it is really, 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 really hard to have the, the house and the car and the kids and the dog um and i think it's interesting as well that um possibly i think there are people who maybe around our parents age people who are sort of coming of age in the 60s 70s 80s who made a real point of rejecting those conventional things and they're baffled by the fact that we'd want to and it's like well why don't you just why do you even care why aren't you living in an ashram why aren't you in your camper van and I think it's very very easy to reject something when it's so comfortable and so available and I think that we've all grown up feeling to some extent chronically insecure I believe that we are the first generation who have been really academically hothoused. I know there are lots of exceptions. I know I'm enormously privileged in many ways to have had this experience, but, you know, at school, I really felt like, you know, it's it's A star or fail. I went to a very, very competitive academic girls' school. And I talking to my parents, I do get the impression that then if you were clever, they were like, great, you're clever, you know, opportunities await. And if you weren't kind of naturally academically able, it was just... And I'm sure there are plenty of people who, you know, dispute this, who, who lived through it, didn't have that experience. But there was no like, well, don't worry about pushing yourself into being something you're not. And we were all, I think the myth is like, oh, terrible millennials want, you know, with their participation medals. And actually, no, it's more that we were all told the only option is excellence. And that's just damaging and crushing. And I'm still living with that horrible, horrible legacy of I I struggle to feel proud of my career and my work. I don't really feel successful because all I see is people doing it better than me, which I think is, you know, insane because if I was, if I was my friend or if I had a friend doing what I was doing, I wouldn't feel that way about them. I'd be like, you know, go on my son or whatever it is yeah. that would be appropriate to yeah. say. And I think sadly, it's probably as the young the younger generation younger generations than us are probably having a worse time of it do you think because people are getting tested more there's more pressure there's more screen time we're more exposed to other people oh sometimes when I really really think about social media I never feel more like grandpa Simpson like waving at a cloud um I feel as though I am in a position where I can I mean i there are lots of reasons why it doesn't always help 
and it can it's easier said than done but I can sort of I know I can consciously like limit my my screen time and I think that teen teenagers today but people do grow up feeling that is not an option I don't like Facebook this is because I just I feel like nothing good happens there I see so much negativity and also you know when I've done work that involves like moderating Facebook comments on a page I'm just utterly stunned even though you know things that are actually sort of you know hate speech or abuse you know they have it also but just stuff that's just totally horrible just people being really mean and bitchy and unkind and possibly trying to be funny but it's not funny it's just cruel and I think across all generations there's been a real I've become very disappointed in humans I think and that's been possibly reflected in or exacerbated by the news especially over the last couple of years but I do think sometimes and there's lots of joy there and lots of you know things to recommend it and lots of good but that social media is making us nastier and I don't think it's just people like oh I'm I going to be evil I think it's because it does make people feel insecure and less than and like you know nearly all bullies wanting to punch down and you know lash out to make themselves feel better and it's just pain multiplying on its own it's gross and distressing and heartbreaking and I, I, I hate it yeah, I have to say, I, I don't feel that way about Facebook, for, for me personally, but for me, Twitter has gone that way. Twitter has become quite a nasty place to, to hang out, and you see sort of witch hunts or, I don't know, just a lot yeah, of nastiness. But I mean, the it's always volume been like that. Of, of piling on. I mean, I met my husband on Twitter, and I don't know that you could do that now, but you can't, you know, because I do, I really... You know, I loved it for the jokes. And there was something at the time where my brain really seemed to sort of function quite neatly into being a bit daft in 140 characters. And now, I don't know, I think we all just feel a bit lost. And it's, you know, the blind leading the blind. <laughs> We're all going on hoping for something, some connection, something to make us feel more human. And we all just feel less and less human. Yeah, totally. Um, in your in your TED talk, you talk about compare and despair and this difference between, I think you call it the, the perfect 20s and the real 20s. And you could say this about any age, really, the kind of the perfect life or the real life and that kind of the difference between the two. Can you talk a bit about the compare and despair that so many of us experience? I guess it comes back to social media because I think it is very easy. We all want to show a highlight reel. And I think that's fine. You know, I don't think while I would love, to, you know, I think lots of people are very open and honest and that is to be applauded. I'm really inspired by um, Bryony Gordon. I can't remember her real name, Body Posse Panda. Um yeah, oh gosh, I want to say Jane Adams? <laughs> Again, this is very like, I'm Grandpa Simpson, Instagram wise, but and lots of people who are very committed to, I think, authenticity, and especially when it comes to kind of physical beauty and broadening what beauty is and making it something that's inclusive. And I think that is fantastic. However, and I, I do this sometimes, and I, I find it frustrating when sometimes on Instagram, because I'm not 
good at Instagram. And again, comparing and despairing. I'm always comparing myself with people who are good at Instagram and thinking, oh God, why why can't I figure this out? Why, you know, I've, it's a bit like, um, I think when, you know, moving, getting a new washing machine, be like, I'm not stupid and I don't understand what any of these pictures mean. Um, you know, I think that we should be allowed to edit ourselves and broadcast ourselves. And I do think that Instagram feels like a very female-led place. And I think that people historically have always tried to kind of control the way that women are seen. And Instagram gives a lot of power back, whether that's a selfie or whether that's a, you know, a gorgeous front room or sort of a perfect workout picture. And I don't think we should be obliged to kind of show our vulnerabilities if we'd rather not just for the sake of the greater good I think if you you know want to do that and you feel comfortable that's wonderful but I think that there shouldn't be an obligation to do so you know with all of that in mind it's really 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 hard to I think know the difference between what is reality and what is fantasy there's absolutely something about instagram and the way it works where your best friend's picture will be next to taylor swift's picture um kendall jenner's picture and you start and i think it alienates us from the people we love because you know something nice happens to our friend we feel it's sort of low level as distant from that as we would do like those bits of kendall jenner's perfect seeming life and I don't really know how to stop it. There's um, a brilliant, brilliant woman, Lucy Sheridan. I'm sure you've come across her. She is a comparison coach who really talks about this and what it means. And I do, I'm going to try to bear in mind, you know, someone will have an amazing, huge piece in a magazine and I'll be like, oh, I wish I'd written that. I've never written for that magazine. That looks amazing. And then you'll talk to the friend and be like, yeah, it took eight edits and the editor's a nightmare and I've been working on it forever and they sat on it and I've still not been paid. And you just, it's, I think the thing about comparing and despairing is we would never, ever, ever compare or oh, we'd never despair if we knew all the, the full details of the comparison, if we knew what was below the surface. And also I do think we forget that people compare themselves to us and again we don't really think that we're perhaps that remarkable because we're living it you know we know I mean hypothetically I don't know if anyone's going to see this and um you know they're going to think oh Chloe should be talking to me and interviewing me about my life and not like not stupid Daisy but then they won't know say you know we've been having chats on the internet for ages or that it's you know that you you read my book and you know they wrote a book and you know you'd probably love it and get them on or I don't know there's no it's so easy I think to really when we're looking at the detail of someone's life to miss the detail that we see what we want to see and I think I mean from therapy too I know and I'm sure you know this far better than I do and I think I think this is in your book also about the scripts we have and how those scripts can really really mess us up and use you know it's like using wrong evidence in the way that say a certain upmarket tabloid newspaper will regularly uh, publish stories about what causes cancer um but anything can cause cancer if you squint at the results and extrapolate what you want to extrapolate we can look at other people's lives and use anything as evidence that 
we are not who we want to be. And it's very, 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 very hard to shake that off. And I truly believe that as women, we all grow up with a really toxic script. I think that no matter how positive and good our families and friends are, it's very difficult not to absorb that message that as women, your value is limited to the way you look and also being really success I think there's a lot about sort of success as well and how an ambition and I think it's funny how ambition has gone from I think there was a time maybe 50 40 30 years ago where if you said of a woman oh she's a bit ambitious it's like oh she's a ball breaker in a suit and no one will ever love her and now I think we're all meant to be ambitious but for me I'm really trying to pick what my ambition genuinely is because I think what I've carried with me is I'm still the little girl who has failed if she's not top of the class and that's not ambition I don't know what it is but it's not making me happy and I have let that really lead me astray from what I truly want to do in some ways I'm not still sure what I want to do yet I think I think the difficult thing with ambition is that we constantly move the goalposts. So yes. you know, you've written one book and now you need to actually write another one. You know, don't waste any time celebrating the and, first one. Just get on crack on to I the next goal. I remember that so much when doing the publicity for how to be a grown up first time around and people would say, What's next? And even though that's a you know, a lovely, genuine, interested question, almost hearing it as an accusation and thinking, Well, thank goodness it's a two book deal, because otherwise I'd have nothing to say to that. I don't know. It's almost like, because I think that's the trouble as well, is we almost treat success like you've, I think I always feel a bit like I've won a competition and I'm trying to learn how to feel like it's something, you know, it's a big block. I'm I'm building a big house and, you know, I'm I'm the little pig with the bricks and no wolf can blow this away. And I feel like, you know, it only takes a, scheming wolf and a strong gust <laughs> yeah I'm sure lots of people can relate to that and just going back to what, what you're saying about the comparison and um, I was thinking about how they brought in new laws recently about influencers that have to state if they were gifted something or if something is mm. an ad and really tightening up on that and I was thinking what if we had to actually declare everything we had to declare you know yes I've I've written this book, but you don't see the sleepless nights and the arguments with my partner and oh my God, I, mean, I haven't seen my friends in six months and you have to kind if, of declare these things. If that hasn't been a black mirror yet, it has to be. Mm. You know, that is a perfect sort of dystopian setup. And yeah, I don't know. And I think the other thing as well is I think that women do do that. I mean, I'm being really general. Some guys do that. Some women don't do that for sure. But we are, I think, strongly culturally and socially encouraged to declare. You know, we're sort of from someone says, oh, that's a nice dress. And you're like, oh, um, but it's really old and it was Primark and in the sale. And actually they paid me to take it away. I found it in a skip. And we really, we just throw ourselves under the bus over and over and over and to... I think we're very quick to give our power away and I think there's a risk of doing that with the declaring and I think that there's a way of doing it. Um, in The Sisterhood I talk a bit about I think the difference between having a sense of humour about yourself and how that can be a really 
positive and powerful thing and just being endlessly self-deprecating and saying sorry I'm shit and I remember I remember that so vividly from features meetings at Bliss and as all having our and every single person saying oh I didn't really spend long enough and these ideas weren't very good before coming up with 20 genius hilarious amazing ideas and yeah I just I think that we don't give ourselves a break and maybe we could we just need to declare to ourselves more it's about reframing it in a really positive way and you know I did not win this in a competition this is and I've said it before and it's really you know I have to kind of bite down on my fist but I want to say I am so proud of this I do believe I'm going to say it I'm going to look you in the eye I believe it's the best thing I've ever written and I think it's it's sad and funny and I could not have written this book before it's set period of very hard work of me getting up and writing when I didn't want to write and I didn't feel like I was good enough and I didn't think I was capable and just writing anyway but it is also this is the work of a woman who has written pretty much every day or at least five days a week since 2008 you know this is me you know working at a craft it's not an accident and writing and I think it's interesting when we talk about talent in all areas and I get this a lot um I don't know if you do too about people sort of coming for career advice and I do think that sometimes all I can tell them is what they really don't want to hear which is it it takes time there's nothing I can tell you in this hour-long coffee that's going to magically give you the, the decade I've got yeah, I think I think sticking with it and being consistent and just carry on carry on going, I think is the best and career I advice. Think, yeah, we talk a lot about passion, but you have to have that because passion is sometimes the only thing that will sustain you because there will be times when you do feel, you know, like you are you know, there's that expression, isn't there, that the stopped clock is right twice a day. And I think that we do have times that are absolutely our times, but quite a lot of that you know, for, you know, there there will be 22 life hours where you're like, oh, come on, <laughs> when will it be my time? And I suppose that's it with the, the podcast that I host, Your Booked, which we've only really been, I mean, we've been on air for, oh God, when was November? We just, I think, going into our second month, third month, third month, um, it's that was kind of a year the first series took a year not a year of constant work but of just you know doing the you know the admin and as you say you know declaring it it's not just a lovely hour of chat it's you know sitting on trains and um the odd plane which makes me feel quite glamorous um and emailing back and forth and panicking and making lists and uh, you know my husband Dale who's a very experienced podcast producer I'm really lucky you know that we can have a bit of a, a cottage industry going but you know the work he you know he edits it it's not purely um you know it's sort of it's as close to the chat as possible but it's you know to sound kind of smooth on the ear I think it takes a lot more work than people realize and there are moments of doing that where I felt utterly delighted and validated and just so so thrilled that people care about it and they're celebrating it and there are other moments where I'm like is this really worth it but I know I love 
what it is so much, which is a conversation with an author whose work I love, whose books I'm excited to see, that, you know, I would listen to that if my only listener was my great auntie Joan, who died in 2007, who hated everything. <laughs> just send me messages from the grave about how terrible it was because I, th- I think that's the level of love you have to have because that that is the only payoff I don't think there's any kind of success that feels like success as much as truly loving what you do absolutely totally agree I wanted to ask you about what you learned when you were Grazia's agony aunt what, what did you learn from that experience I loved that job so much. And I think what I learned, I was a little bit disappointed because I love, love problem pages. I'm such a fan of um, Heather Hevreletsky at The Cut, um, obviously Cheryl Strayed, um, uh, Claire Rayner. I'm trying to think of that. Dear Deirdre. Um, but, you know, Graham Norton, his is great. God, I just love hacking up. Um, but every so often, you know, you get a problem, someone would, would write into them and the answer would be, well, the, your problem, like your problem is that you're an idiot and the only solution is for you to stop being an idiot. I didn't get any of those. I had really, really thoughtful, difficult, brilliant questions. And I think that I was never, ever going to be a tough love agony art. I was always, I think trying to give permission people permission to feel what they wanted to feel and what they want you know and I think everybody it's all a bit like um you know sort of Mr Miyagi thing to say like the truth is inside you but that's it I think and I think how to be a grown-up was absolutely an extension of that that what I wanted to write was something that's perhaps appeared to be self-help but it was really showing people that they were absolutely strong enough themselves and that getting it wrong doesn't mean that you never get it right, that getting it wrong is absolutely inevitable. And also, if a question is hard, if a choice is hard, it's probably because there is no right answer. You know, there are things you can do to to make it easier and be stronger. Um, but yeah, and it's another thing as well that really struck me was I think the majority of problems I got asked were about work. Um, a few about relationships, but mostly work. And I sort of lazily assumed it would be a lot more kind of romance heavy than it was. But I think, you know, for millennials, I'm going to say our work is our, it's, I think it's the love of our lives, but I think lots of us are kind of in abusive relationships with it too. And I know I've really felt like that on and off from doing jobs that crushed me to also, I think I wrote this piece to the pool once. I was like, my boss is the worst and the boss is me. I am my own boss. <laughs> Interesting. I think I read that actually. I think I remember reading that. That was good. About yeah. not, not giving yourself, be, beating yourself up and not giving yourself enough breaks and that sort of yeah. thing. Yeah. You know, and really like, not like when I felt, I mean, I've got a lot better, but, um, when I started freelancing, you know, it would get to about four o'clock in the day and I'd, you know, be either writing furiously or pitching furiously or not. And I'd, you know, have some sort of emotional breakdown. I'd be like, oh, I'm so shit. I'll never make it work. It's all terrible. And then I'd be like, oh, and I'm also very hungry. Am I crying and mad because I've not eaten anything all day because I've been staring at my laptop without moving? Yes, that's the problem. And... It's- it's funny what low blood sugar can do to you. 
<laughs> I um for lunch today because I was literally finishing my book this morning before the call. I ate some poppadoms with some mango chutney for lunch, so that felt that like a, a freelancer kind of adulting type thing to do. I do have a theory um, that basically, that like a freelancer's lunch, it could be a quiz, couldn't it? Freelancer's lunch or artisanal pizza topping. <laughs> that you could go to somewhere in like Hackney or Peckham and you know you drink out of a jam jar and it'd be like I'm eating peanut butter from the jar and some weird like crispy onions and a lump of cheese I found and um some raisins like put on a pizza charge 20 quid for it <laughs> oh I would eat that that sounds good to me um well, tell us what your new book's about um the sisterhood the sisterhood it's a memoir it's called a love letter to the women who shaped me so it's about growing up from being a, a little girl to now with my five younger sisters um beth grace uh, livy maddie and dotty we're all very close in age so i'm um 33 34 um maddie and dotty the youngest are it's very embarrassing as i can't remember their age they're 25 they turn 26 this year so really very much you know we grew up doing everything together being really sort of on top of each other I've always always loved books about families books about sisters and there are so many you know ballet shoes little women pride and prejudice it's a real trope in literature and so I suppose I wanted to explore those relationships between women and use my sisters as a bit of a springboard for that intensity I think I've always been a girl's girl. I've got lots of like good friends who are guys. You know, I love my husband very much, but I'm not, I have to really kind of make an effort to be interested in men and what they're doing. I really only like, I want to read about girls. I want to hang out with girls. I love girls. I'm like Charlotte in that episode of Sex and the City where she talks about like, you know, I've got an admiration for the female spirit. It's not a sexual love. I'm mainly straight, but it is. It does feel like a romance. It feels like the love of my life. I care what women think more than anyone else. And it was kind of only really writing it that I realised how, you know, I think there is some pain in in the love story, for sure. I think that to paraphrase the famous line, I think all families, happy and unhappy, are dysfunctional. I think that you get given a role that you don't choose. And what has interesting about writing the book and thinking about our relationship is how when we were defined by our sisterhood we really all wanted to you know wriggle against it and sort of strike out of it and only really when we had other adult identities and we got to go off and explore on our own and find what it felt to be independent that was when we all came together to really embrace our sisterhood um but in short, my friend Flora read it and she said the loveliest thing to me, which I think is the best compliment ever. And I feel like it really sums up what I was going for. So it's like that it's like Nancy Mitford wrote Fleabag. <laughs> Brilliant. I will take that. Brilliant. Um, you talk about big sister syndrome and I'm pretty sure that I suffer from this syndrome being a big sister myself. I've got two younger sisters. Can you explain what that is? I think I define it as the sense that you have to be first at all times but not in a um what was that fast show sketch competitive dad like you're not in a way that makes you sort of 
order over people. It's just like that is the natural order. And so if you're not first, you fail. You just assume that you're going to be first in the queue. So we're, you know, sort of quite entitled. I think it definitely makes me obnoxious. But there are times when I sort of, I mind retrospectively about my sister's exam results. Like if they did better, it was a real kind of, yeah, big sister syndrome. This feeling there's nothing enjoyable about being first you just feel as though you failed when you haven't and I think it's also kind of connected to a need to maybe do a little bit of premature mothering fixing of controlling of taking responsibility for absolutely everything and knowing even in my relationships with my sisters now if they're in trouble I won't just listen to the problem I'll be like well I'll send you some money can I um I'll I'll do this. I'll I'll send your CV to someone. I'll I'll shout at that boy. And it's like no, you just have to sit still and listen and let them be a person. And it's it's really really hard. I do I feel as though yeah, just absolutely everything is my fault. You know, down to that's what I think why I had to go freelance because if I've been working in an office and someone somewhere is having a hushed conversation a couple of desks away, I always think, oh, what have I done? It's it's narcissistic I think it has for me anyway because you're you know you are kind of the head of this group but it's not an enjoyable narcissism you know you're never thinking about how great you are just how the weight of the world is on your shoulders and you must be first I wonder if whether or not you're a sister or not women in general experience this sense of responsibility because we're we're sort of told from an early age that we're the nurturers, it's our job to take care of people. And I think that the weight of that, I think can be quite a pressure as well. I think that's totally true. And that, oh, you know, you're better at that sort of thing. And, you know, down from, you know, I think a lot about adverts and we see these adverts of women, yeah, nurturing and fixing and being kind of, you know, soft and domestic and in control of the home. And so we take that on. And also, I think, you know, women as is, is martyr, that we feel as though we are the ones, if there's something to give up, we'll, we'll give it up. And I think you see it a lot in, in mothers, but also whether, you know, whether or not we're parents, if we see our own mums doing it, which I think most of us do, then we're going to carry that forward as well. Yeah, definitely. And I was looking into this thing about birth order and anxiety. I don't know if you know anything about this, but some oh, evidence that... I heard some stuff, but God, I'm very curious to chat about this. Yeah, so I think there's some evidence that the firstborn is more likely to experience anxiety and depression because there's extra pressure, maybe more academic pressure that seemed to come up in this survey that I was reading. Um, so I think there might be something to that. Yeah, yeah I think possibly as the eldest I think I felt very exposed because I mean I, again a huge privilege I was enormously lucky but my parents were very very engaged and sometimes I think about how you know when, when the, the twins the youngest were born you know they were exhausted there were loads of us and they knew that if we you know the house didn't burn down everybody could be accounted for at the end of the day then everything was fine and I'm sure that's a, a big part of, of parenting that you just you have so much energy and so much anxiety when it's your firstborn because you've never done it before and of course that's going to be transferred um 
Yeah, I mean, I think it's like, because I've got, no, there's no one, I had no evidence telling me that everything's going to be okay. So I just, I had to, to make it okay by, by doing all the terrifying things, I suppose. Um, you know, I remember other silly things as well, getting my first job washing up at a pub when I was 15, and then it being assumed like, oh, well, you know, you can, you can get a better job there too. And I, excuse me I've been you know I had to do this myself and I you know I feel that even now as well I'm really really quite bad at asking for anything because I'm so used to just going out and getting it and it just it makes me really 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 uncomfortable and I am also I think quite good at, at offering things no one has asked for and in a way that's not always healthy it can be quite difficult and that's something that you know sort of going into 2019 I had a bit of a think because I think I really struggled last year with my mental health I had some I think very difficult periods I found the the book writing quite intense um there was an incident right at the start of the year where I was assaulted um when I was um far far away on a trip and I don't think I gave myself enough time to to recover from that and again that becomes I think I I needed support from people and so many people were amazing but equally I don't think I really knew how to ask for the support I had and I was really really lucky I think because I was in therapy um you know I'd be seeing my therapist for probably three and a half years and you know as long as I can I'm really lucky that I can afford to kind of do it privately and it's once a fortnight so it's not so crippling but I think that's not something that's something I'm really I feel like is always sort of useful to me and I found actually in terms of sort of dealing with it and coping with it having lots of therapy tools was really really useful and you know and I came home to to my husband and and he was great but yeah it was quite I think working on my own as well and being by myself a lot meant that was quite difficult and then going in and I had this sort of big ghostwriting project and I wrote back-to-back books and I think I just felt really just very down on myself all the time like all all of my voices were self-critical I was just and you know again it's I think back to that old script and you know because when I was younger I was um I was bullied a lot at school um you know really quite violently and for quite a long time and I think it was at a time when it schools were perhaps there was culturally less pressure on schools to to be aware of that and to you know not be so oh you know boys will be boys when you know heads are being kicked in but I've got a lot of very negative scripts that I've been carrying around with me a lot and I think when I am tired or or run down or I've been I suppose not connected with good nourishing things you know those are the, the scripts that kind of float up to the surface and so I really wanted to make a commitment to myself this year to you know to to rewrite the scripts to be proud and positive and happy and to know that I have to be um 
a little bit up myself in want of a better expression because I can't wait for anybody else to to do that for me no one's going to say the thing that makes me feel better about myself if I'm so committed to saying the worst things about myself um and but I think with that I realized how much of the big sister sort of people pleasing I was doing wanting to be like the benevolent provider he had all the answers and quite a lot of people god that sounds really like I'm such a martyr I'm so great quite a lot of people have been taking advantage of me but I mean I'm sure you find this too when you're on social media and available and people can get in touch with you and you know in the way that I think I'm someone who finds it very difficult to ask of things. Other people find it very easy. And I think that people unconsciously can almost smell it when you're a, a people pleaser who's like rent your mum to cheer someone up for half an hour. Um, that sounded gross and not, not how I meant it to. It came out wrong. <laughs> um, but yeah, to be, I suppose, I want to like myself enough to be less anxious about being liked and also to acknowledge that well if people only like me because I'm doing them quite big favors then that's not that's not the liking I want <laughs> which is difficult but it definitely comes back to that being a big sister and feeling like I should be the one with the answers and the solutions and to be the caretaker and I think a lot of it is because I've just I've had so many periods of feeling so alone and so scared and I want to be the reassuring voice in the dark that I wish I could have had yeah I can definitely relate to what you're saying there I think a lesson that I've learned in the last I don't know six months or year is to try to take a step back and just wait for people to kind of sort themselves out a bit rather than feel like I need to rush in and kind of fix mm -hmm. things or be a caretaker of other people's feelings or something like that and that big sister energy that wants to kind of yeah that overprotective almost or people pleasing energy just trying to sort of step back from that um and another thing that you were saying about asking for help I think I was trying to reflect on if a friend of mine was feeling low or anxious or needed something and felt like they they couldn't ask me for help I'd be absolutely mortified I'd so want them to come and you know let me know what I could do to help them mm. and so there's no reason why other people wouldn't also feel that way as well so I think we need to we need to ask for help a bit more and especially I think male partners actually want to know exactly what they can do yeah. specifically to help being very specific rather than I don't know because sometimes they just don't know what to do unless unless we're quite specific with them so I think yeah that's a really really good point that people and that's another thing I think that can be quite difficult is and I think I tried to have this in mind when I was nagging aunt and people asking for advice I think that sometimes if you are feeling sad or you want to talk and you talk to someone you love I think they sometimes sort of minimize your experience or minimize your pain and it's all because it's they just cannot bear the idea of you being sad and they want to make it better but they don't know the difference between making it better in their heads and making it actually better for you. And, you know, I sort of do this and I've had this conversation with my sisters. Um, and I think knowing most people know if there's an obvious solution, the person asking for advice or talking about it has probably thought about that obvious solution. And, you know, people I think really, really, really want to be heard and, you know, if you're 
if your loo breaks and sort of backs up all over the house, you don't want someone to say, why don't you call the plumber? You want someone to say, oh, I'm so sorry. That's awful. What a horrible thing to have to deal with. You know, and that's true emotionally and lavatorially. I don't know if you've ever read the book, Men Are From Mars, Women Are From Venus. I think it's quite out of date now, but they talk about this idea of um, men wanting to fix women by coming mm. up with solutions for what you should do for, you know, maybe your mental health, just stop worrying, or have you thought about going for a walk or something like this? <laughs> and actually what we need is just to, for someone to hold space for us mm. and someone just to listen. And actually you feel so much better by being heard and being understood and not someone trying to fix you or mm. offer these kind of suggestions. So, yeah. Um, another thing I really wanted to ask you was about girl on girl judgment. Cause I think this is a big, a big mm. thing about, I don't know, the bitchiness or the, the judgmentalness of, that seems kind of out of control, I think, especially at the moment. I think firstly, something that I think we forget that I will not stop banging on about is we all grew up in a patriarchy, men and women. And it's an example that I've said before, but it's the only one I think I can think of that does it. If you're a woman, being a woman who's being mean bitchy about other women, it's like being an eight-year-old at school and someone says, what football team do you support? And you're like, football? I don't know, I don't know. Manchester United! They're the good one. That's the one that everybody likes. And, you know, that's true. Everywhere we look, we see women being shamed, made smaller, put down, told that whatever they're doing, they're doing it wrong, you know, in a way that's really, really, really conflicting. You know, it, at the moment, you see it in the royal family. Kate isn't Megan enough. Megan isn't Kate enough. It is nuts. And so we see all that and we absorb all that. And how are we not going to be dicks to women? How are we going to like to break through? And, you know, it takes a lot of work, I think, to make the leap. And be like, hold on a minute. Internalised misogyny is, you know, it's what we all have and it's what we're all born with. And we've got to really choose to, to challenge it. And that can come in different ways. And also, I think that when we're jealous of women and we're mean about them, often it's because we we wish we had their their freedom or we wish they had their security or it's it's I know him so well that's the um the root of girl on girl um meanness um I I don't have children I am fairly sure that is not something that I want to do and to be honest I'm really really taken aback by the sort of the the generosity that I've experience when I've discussed this with other mothers I absolutely understand I think why that is something that people do want to do beyond you know perpetuating the species um I think there are some really you know amazing aspects to it and I sort I do I mean I feel quite envious I think of people who have the the confidence to be parents like that much hope you know, to go out and do it, I just, I'd never sleep again. And I think that the people who, do, I think it's the hardest, hardest thing you can do. And, you know, it dazzles me. But equally, I think, you know, one hears a lot of negativity around women who choose not to be parents. And I think that has to be about, about freedom. I think 
the the physical labor and the endless nature of the labor I think you know parenting is the toughest thing ever and I'm sure for women especially I only realized I only realized quite recently that I didn't have to I thought it was just inevitable which is a mad thing to think I know but I think you do because you just it's it's what what you see and what you've seen for hundreds and thousands of years and so we look at the Victoria's Secret angels and people oh stupid angels they're probably not very clever and not very nice and they could pay too much and blah blah and all we're saying is like god if I look like that I would never wear clothes again and then and I think that's a really difficult one as well and it's something that I've been really like going back and forth on and kind of wrestling with in a way that it's largely pointless because it's all very hypothetical but about women and their bodies and how much of the sort of bitchiness and unsisterliness is about that and how we are very very I think supportive and sisterly on the whole when we see a woman who isn't you know very 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 slim and airbrushed and sort of conventionally looking how Hollywood claims she should look um yeah, there's lots of kind of like, oh, you're so brave. I did a piece for Glamour a few years ago. I was naked. Um, and the piece was much more about the experience of being naked in the gym changing rooms, naked in Hampstead Ponds, and less about the naked photo shoot to go with it. But I think the photo shoot was what people responded to. And you couldn't see much. It was all, you know, cropped and, you know, just a bit of bum, no nipple. But there was lots of, oh, you know, that was very brave. I, I've, got, I've got one of those brave bodies, haven't I? It's not, a, um, it's not a model body. It's a brave body. But equally, we don't, I don't feel like, and again, I think it comes back to sort of the flaws and the disclosing. There's not the same onus on men to, to show their bodies and show their different bodies. And perhaps that would be a good thing. I'm really aware at the moment that there is a lot increasing pressure on men to look a certain way. And I think that's really frightening and really, really damaging. And maybe if there was a bit more honesty, it would help us all. But at the same time, I think it's just, it's very reductive that we always sort of come back to bodies. Um, I love Lena Dunham's work. I think she's an incredibly brilliant and talented writer. I think She's someone who has perhaps suffered from being in the public eye. And I think obviously she's said and done things that shocked me. But equally, I think that she has received a sort of a disproportionate backlash and response and, and pile on. Um, because, and I think a lot of it is misogyny. I think people can't bear the fact that she's a woman who speaks out. I think people can't bear the fact that she's a woman who's successful, who's not this sort of, you know, very, 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 very slim woman. At the same time, because she is so naked so often. And at first I was like, well, this is great. This is really widening the spectrum. You know, it's another sort of gorgeous body showing how you can be gorgeous in a different way. But I sort of got to a point where I thought, Larry David isn't naked. Whenever anyone talks about Larry David, they talk about what a brilliant writer he is. He's not changing things for men by being, you know, getting his willy out. And yeah, it it sits awkwardly, I think, especially as I'm someone who isn't always comfortable with her body and I feel like a hypocrite. Also, you know, 
I, I want to be I want to be sexy and pretty and admired and I think it's really really hard as a woman to say all those things out loud I feel quite like god I can't believe I just told you that and like I think I feel like I should be like well I'm a feminist and it doesn't matter and it it does it does matter and I hate that a lot still you know I'm I'm a woman who's almost 34 I've I've published books I've got you know friends and you know relationships and a life I'm really really proud of that makes me really really happy that I think that would it be better would I be better if I was prettier and that sucks and if I feel like that then god only knows how hard it is when you're 16 yeah there's so much pressure I think even I think levels of depression and anxiety is twice what it is in the normal population in models so you know even if you do reach society standards of or whatever of you know perfection that doesn't guarantee anything you know it doesn't guarantee you're going to be happy there was a writer who wrote regularly for Jezebel about being a model in her career and it was amazing she wrote I really loved her writing and she was writing about how nothing makes you feel uglier than being professionally beautiful it's just like rejections all the way but like the people who are there to help you build your career they're not cheerleaders they're always looking at you for flaws and telling you what you need to fix it's like the opposite of a lovely book editor writing cheery comments in your margin <laughs> um so just to kind of to summarize this thing on judgment then is it about do we need to just be more supportive of women just cut out the bitchiness completely where does where do we draw the line between wanting to kind of give each other feedback and wanting to be very accepting of everyone because that's, that's not something I think about a lot I think I would probably be too nice to everyone and actually sometimes you do need to call people out or I don't know what your thoughts on that well I suppose it's very much to do with like your motivation isn't it I think that at our core we need to know who we are and who we're speaking to and I think that if we are moved to call someone out because we feel and to do it in a very public way, because we feel as though we want to express who we are with our judgment against them. I, I don't think that's helpful. I don't think that's useful. I think we should just know who we are. You know, it's very easy to say bad thing is bad. And I think we need to acknowledge that it's unlikely that ours is going to be the voice that, that I don't know, makes Theresa May take reproductive rights more seriously. I'm not sure what her stance on this is right now I know it's been a bit shady gay marriage as well um but I suppose it's always you know very very basic but it's you know wanting to do as you would be done by that if someone asks for for help if someone asks for feedback and you're their friend and you think about how honest you'd want to be it's really difficult being honest um and I think if it's kind of if it's beyond a sort of superficial you know social media connection and it's actually you know being in in someone's life and I suppose you know actually calling someone out to their face is the opposite of being bitchy being bitchy is is what I do which is going to, onto a whatsapp group and be like oh my god I cannot believe x has done y um and I think as well we need it's a difference I think between criticizing someone's behavior and criticising, you know, their face or their body or their, their spirit. Um, back to Facebook, I did, um, I'm probably going to get into trouble saying this, but never mind. I don't look um, 
but there was a journalist, a friend spotted it, um, right, um, as being really like unnecessarily bitchy about a, a place that me and my friend both used to to write for, and place had just sort of had um, had closed, and I felt really sort of incensed to be like, you know, how very dare she? Who is she? I felt very Nicky Graham about it. I had a bit of a Google of this woman. I'm like, oh, I hate her. And I sort of hate Googling, just a toxic thing to do. Don't do it, kids. But I found a story about this woman. And it was kind of, I mean, it was something she'd written about herself and her life. But it made me think, if that had happened to me, I would probably be carrying a lot of negativity around with me. I'd probably be quite bitter. And I think it's almost like containing a virus, isn't it? It is very, very easy for us to be swept away and to spread the hate. And I think it's absolutely reasonable to need a kind of a vent and a rant sometimes, sort of at what people do. But also to know being human is just so difficult for so much of the time. And if someone is behaving in a way that seems upsetting or unfathomable it's very unlikely they woke up that morning and thought ah I'm gonna be a dick today they are dealing with something and acting out and quite often you're not the person to do that you know I think everyone's sort of often tempted to intervene when it's not we need to amplify women like to celebrate and like my uh, if I have a motto it's ABC always be cheerleading because all I want to do is talk about the brilliant, brilliant things that women do. And I, I struggle with it because quite often the brilliant things women do are things I wish I was doing and struggle with that, that why not me, which I think is very, very much connected to being a, a sister and seeing my sisters doing brilliant things and being pleased, but also being like, but that, that could have been mine. And that things between sisters should be sort of fairly divided. And if you feel as though things aren't being divided for you, it can be really, really tough. But I think that it's important to, again, remember that if you think of what they might disclose, deep that, that that has taken them. And that's not to, and that effort does not detract from what they've done. It actually makes it a much bigger deal. And, you know, we need to sort of to, to sing for our sisters, to look at all of the ways in which women are wonderful. And then I think at least if we do feel like we have to go and be bitchy, we feel like, you know, at least we're balanced. I think it's always important to just make sure you're you're putting out more positive than negative. I mean, your time on earth is like staying in an Airbnb and you need to leave it as nice or maybe slightly nicer than it was when you found it. I love that idea. That's a really good message to... Need a little thank you note. Box of chocolates. Yeah, yeah. Especially if they left you some Prosecco. <laughs> Oh, that's amazing. Thank you so much for sharing all of your thoughts. Oh, I... It is my absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. And where can people find out about you? And I love your Instagram, by the way. You said you're not very good at Instagram. But I <laughs> happen to love it. So where oh, can people find you and what you're up to and buy you. a book? Thank you so much. On um, Twitter, I'm at NotRollerGirl. Um, on Instagram, I'm the Daisy Bee, but like an insect bee. Um, my new book, The Sisterhood, published by Headline on the 7th of March. Is that the right way around? A love letter to the woman who shaped me. Um, that is available in um, all good bookshops um, and Amazon and online. 
I should say, I have a local bookshop, themargatebookshop.com, which is um, near me, but also online at the moment. They are excitingly getting some physical premises, but you can um, order it from there. And I think, um, depending on when this goes out, you should be able to get 20% off with the code BOOKED, which is my podcast. Oh, which is also, um, if you go to acast.com slash booked, um, you can listen to that. Or it's your booked wherever you get your podcasts. And I'm always going on about it on social media when we've got a new episode out. And it's me looking at the bookshelves of um, writers I love and talking about authors and readers and writing. Brilliant, brilliant. I'll put all those links in the show notes as well so people can find that. Ah, oh, fantastic. Thank, Thank you. you so much for talking to me. It's been so much fun. Thanks so much for having me on. Thank you. So thanks so much for listening. Let me know what you think of this episode. You can find me on Instagram. I'm at Chloe Brotheridge. And if you've got a friend who could benefit from this episode, please let them know about the podcast or take a screen grab and send it to them. And you can let Daisy know what you thought at the Daisy B. Daisy B-E-E, if you see what I mean, like Bumblebee. So yeah, thanks so much and hope you'll listen again soon. Hold up, what was that? Boring, no flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 